He also just happens to be an, a not nice word. An arsehole. He's an arsehole. <laughs> Welcome to Red Wine Reads, a community of book lovers talking about our favorite and not-so-favorite books while pouring a glass or two of wine. I'm your host, Jenna Miller, and with me today is our resident Emily St. John Mandel expert, Ella Kopakin. Now, before we start, I should warn you that we do spoil the endings of the books we review, so if you don't like that, then please go finish the book and come right back to this episode. My goal is to have you read these books with us so you can participate in the conversation. At the beginning of each month, I outline the books we will be reviewing, so whether you want to read one, none, or all of them, the choice is up to you. These reviews are not backed by any science or experience, just purely two opinionated amateur readers. You may hate the books we love or love the books we hate. Everyone has different tastes, but we hope this podcast is fun to listen to no matter how you like your books. So without further ado, let's pull some corks and get reading. This week we read The Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Welcome, Ella, to another episode of Red Wine Reads. Thank you so much, Jenna. I'm honored to be here, everyone. We read this week The Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel. Just so excited to have Ella, our, you know, Emily St. John Mandel expert at this point. (laughs) Yeah, because I only watched Station Eleven and did not read it. And now we read The Glass Hotel and I feel like a true expert. Okay, so I thought Jenna was going to hate this book, but then Jenna has been teasing me that she didn't hate this book. So Jenna, take it away. Did you like it? You just have to wait a little bit longer because I have to get into uh, just a little bit about the author and a little bit about the book. Wow, you can't even give me a preview? Nah, 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 nah. Oh, fine. Okay, do your intro bit, whatever. (laughs) You have to just let it sit, let it simmer. Let's just get right into it. So our author, Emily St. John Mandel, she is also the author, as Ella alluded to earlier, Station Eleven, which is an award-winning novel that got turned into an HBO series. I read the book, watched the series, absolutely loved both. Both were phenomenal. It's so, I mean, this, I, again, I haven't read the book, but the series is like unlike anything I've ever seen in my entire life. Yes. And honestly, the book is very, very similar to how she writes The Glass Hotel. They have very similar vibes. For all those people who love a non-narrative queen, a, a non-linear narrative queen, bow down to Emily St. John Mandel. She's great. Anyways, uh, she is the author of six other novels. She described her childhood as she grew up with hippies in Canada. And I don't know, you kind of get that vibe when you read her stuff. It's very poetic. It's very fluid. It's very questioning everything in your life. Yes. A little bit about this book. It was selected by President Barack Obama as one of his favorite books of 2020. No way! And it was shortlisted for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, a very high up there prize for novels and novelists. You know, every, every single review I found online about this book... Could not say enough nice things about this book. Uh, it got 3.7 out of 5 on Goodreads. Mm, lame. I can see people not understanding the book. Yeah. And therefore not liking it. I see that too. I get that. So let's get into a little bit about our characters, a little bit about the summary. I feel like there's really three-ish main characters and then a few like side characters that kind of filter in. So we got our main gal, Vincent. So she's a bartender, troubled past. She meets this man, Jonathan 
in a bar, decides to kind of marry him. They don't actually get married, but they kind of form this fake marriage because he has a lot of money. She doesn't have anything. She wants to kind of live this rich, lavish lifestyle, forget about what happened in the past. And then after he gets into a little bit of trouble, she ends up as a chef on a boat and ends up going overboard. (laughs) Yes, Vincent doesn't survive this book. (laughs) We have Paul, Vincent's half-brother. He is a very troubled character, has a lot going on in that big brain of his. He... Not an awesome guy. No. (laughs) I'm just going to be the first to say, not my favorite person. Gives a tainted pill to a friend. Not even a friend, basically a stranger. I was trying to be kind, but yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. I I have no sympathy for Paul. I'm trying to be a little objective here in the the character buildup. Yes, he becomes a composer, steals Vincent's home videos, kind of tries to take him as his own and makes music to them. He becomes addicted to drugs. Again, he ends up killing someone with a tainted ecstasy pill. He also writes a message on this window that ends up getting him fired. Like, man is not batting a thousand. It seems like if you could choose every wrong option, he did. Yeah, if Paul were to take a test on how to be a good human, he would fail it miserably and almost get a zero. He he would get a zero. There's not an almost. And also, if you have an addiction, you have a disease, I understand that. It's just that, like, other than his addiction, he also just happens to be an, a not nice word. An arsehole. He's an arsehole. <laughs> yeah. Who's the third main character? I got Jonathan. Uh, I pronounce his last name Alcatus. And it sounds like Alka Seltzer. So I vote that we just call him Jonathan Alka Seltzer. <laughs> okay, Jonathan Alka Seltzer. I like it. Yeah, so Jonathan Alka-Seltzer, he was to be said to be modeled after Bernie Madoff, kind of this rich investor type who starts a Ponzi scheme. In case you didn't know, Ponzi schemes are legal. Uh, So he does get found out and is arrested (laughs) and is put in jail. And then he kind of disassociates and starts to lose his mind. Yeah, he starts to live in an alternate reality. That is one that did not happen. And he's like, well, what if I never got arrested? What would happen? And then starts living in that reality. He's starting to kind of lose who he is in the present and doesn't really, can't really comprehend what is happening in the present. And it's easier to comprehend what's happening in his alternate brain universe. Yeah. And then side character wise, there's Walter, who is like the head of the hotel. There's Claire, who is Jonathan's daughter, who ends up finding out about the Ponzi scheme, like, very last minute. Like, she's one of the last ones, and she gets really, really upset. There are a few people who aren't really worth naming who, like, work for Jonathan and end up becoming kind of collateral and all deal with the guilt of the Ponzi scheme in different ways because they all pretty much knew about it. I'm trying to think if there's anybody else. Oh, Melissa is Vincent's friend when she's a teenager and young. And then, yeah, when Vincent becomes a trophy wife, she's friends with this woman, Morella. Vincent kind of falls out of touch with her and then sees her at a bar years later and Morella doesn't even recognize her because Vincent's work behind bar isn't, like, important anymore. Yeah. I have a summary here. It's a little long. Well, just do the hits and you can skip over some stuff if you don't feel like it's necessary. Alrighty, let's do it. So the Glass Hotel, this is from NPR. Glass Hotel follows two half-siblings, Vincent and Paul, who we just talked about. Uh, They grew up apart from each other, very, you know, in British Columbia. Paul has lost chunks of his life to heroin addiction. And... Wait, I'm so sorry to pause you. I just realized that we forgot like a huge side character, Ella Kapersky who ends up being the person to take down Jonathan. That's true. And 
is responsible for getting Paul to write this message on the lobby windows that like ends up getting Paul fired and scares Jonathan. Yes, uh, Ella is big though. She she's the one who got first slighted by Jonathan, got scammed by him, and then is the one to get really angry, take him down. Great note. Thank you. So yes, Paul loses his chunks of life to chunks of his life to a heroin addiction, kills um, one of his friends via a pill that is tainted. And then Vincent is working as a bartender while Paul is working as a night houseman at this hotel in... It's like on... It's on an island. The only thing on this island is this hotel, so it's totally remote. Yes. In the north end of Vancouver Island. And it's there where Vincent meets Jonathan, who is the hotel's owner, and he's a successful businessman, falls in love with this young woman because he is a widow himself. Vincent quits her job, moves in with Jonathan. She's not really in love with him, but she wants him for the financial security. She's quoted saying, What kept her in the kingdom was the previously unimaginable condition of not having to think about money, because that's what money gives you, the freedom to stop thinking about money. If you've never been without, then you won't understand the perfect... Profundity? Is that how you say it? Mm -hmm. Okay. The profundity of this, how absolutely this changes your life. So, boom. So in your face, everybody. Yeah, if you've never been poor. Then you can't appreciate being rich. (laughs) So their world falls apart when Jonathan is arrested for running a Ponzi scheme that ruins the lives of his investors. He's sentenced to 170 years in prison. And then he finds himself haunted by a creeping sense of unreality. And he can't really make sense of everything that's going on. So he creates this world that does make sense to him. And so um, there's a quote that they pulled from that. Uh, that says, you can know that you're guilty of an enormous crime, that you stole an immense amount of money from multiple people, and that this caused destitution for some of them and suicide for others. You can know all of this and yet somehow feel like you've been wronged when your judgment arrives. Oof. Ouchie, ouchie. Uh, So, lastly, Vincent leaves Jonathan after he's arrested, taking a job as a cook on a container ship, while Paul manages to finally find success as a musician composing music as soundtracks to Vincent's video art, so really it's not him being successful, it's Vincent being successful. And then Vincent dies because she falls off the ship. Yep. The, their last sentence is, the siblings have drifted apart but come close to encountering each other once before their stories come to an end, a.k.a. they die. But I also feel like like a central mystery that kind of links the whole story together because it's very nonlinear is basically like the central event that sets off everything in this book is... Paul was hired by Ella Kapersky to write Why Don't You Swallow Broken Glass on the windows of the hotel lobby. And originally no one knew who did it or why. People just assumed Paul did it and turns out he did. But later we find out that the reason that Ella Kapersky hired Paul to do that was when she first came after Jonathan, at first unsuccessfully, even though she was later successful, Jonathan's wife, who died of cancer, his first wife, said those words to Ella at a restaurant. And they had always haunted her. And she used them to then haunt Jonathan before she took him down. Yep. And it's tough to get like a full summary of this just because it is so nonlinear. That's, you know, those are the big bullet points. But of course, there's weaving in and out of reality. There's weaving in and out of 
past, present, future, all of that. So you're kind of encountering different parts of everyone's story at different times. And that's exactly what happened in um, Station Eleven as well. And that's what I think they did such a good job of with the show, going back to that, is they were able to make a linear story out of a nonlinear book. Do you want to tell us whether or not you liked the book now, Jenna? I really, really, really enjoyed the book. I would love to read it again Mm. because this is what I think. I don't think I read it carefully enough. I really enjoyed reading it. I felt like I was reading poetry. Yeah. There were like points that really stood out really. I was like, oh my God, that's so good. And then there were parts where I just read it and didn't let it sit and didn't process it. And then I got lost in the next section. Yeah. And then I wrote a bullet. This is so bad for things I didn't like. I wrote a bullet that said, I know this is silly, but I don't know Canada that well. <laughs> so, so I got a little lost with place as to where everyone was. <laughs> I know that's so stupid, but like, I was like, wait, if they're in Toronto, where's that in location to the island that they were? And you know what? Honestly, it's like, does Canada even exist, guys? Does it really matter? Not really. So like, if that's my biggest question, We'll take it. But I read this uh, review from The New Yorker, Katie Waldman, shout out to her. And she said, Mandel's gift to weave realism out of extremity. That's her gift. She plants her flag where the ordinary and the astonishing meet, where everyday people pause to wonder how exactly it came to this. Uh, She is our bard of waking up in the wrong timeline. Ooh, I really like that last line. Really like that. Because I think... That's what I like about her so much is she's able to create this. It's not a mundane story, but it's a told story. You know, it's a Ponzi scheme. It's a woman falling in love with this rich man or not falling in love. It's a man choosing this young woman to join him on this in this life because he's already had the love of his life. And now he just wants a companion and it's a girl looking to just get out of the situation and finds her opportunity. And it's like, we've heard a version of that story in one way or another, but it's her ability to tell that story, but tell it in a way where she's also answering the question to what happens with the sliding glass door type of scenarios. What happens if you choose this way instead of this way? Yeah. What happens when you get to a point in your life and you look back and you're like, well, what if, what if this happened? I said, it tells the story of like that rebirth, that reinvention, that reinvention of your life through different points as Vincent did. So she started off in this place. She kind of rebirthed herself into this bartender position. She rebirthed herself into the arm candy for Jonathan. And then she, after he got in prison, then she goes and becomes a chef on this container ship. So like, how do you constantly reinvent yourself to try to like make your way through life after these traumatic events keep happening to you? I mean, the truth is, you know, have we really heard this story? Like, I think... We know about Ponzi schemes, obviously, and we know about drug addicts. We know about lost people and lost women and all of that. But I think what she is such a master of is emotionally driven storytelling. Like you said, you don't really care where they are. You don't really care how old they are because her characters are so fully cultivated and she's so concerned with motivation and why someone is doing something and where they're at mentally and how that's driving them, et cetera, et cetera, that honestly, anything external becomes almost uh, unnecessary. And so I think like, 
yes, the Ponzi scheme is technically the plot, but actually you're so enraptured by just who they are and what they're thinking on a daily basis that you almost don't really care if anything happens. Mm -hmm. And I think like that is so rare because often I find that authors feel such a need to be so exposition driven and give you a place in time and all of that, that then when it comes to the emotion, they feel so rushed. And she really lets you sit in people's thought processes in a way that I don't really know other authors who are that masterful at that. Mm -hmm. And she does it with every character. Every character. Every character, you feel what they're feeling. And I think that even though this is nonlinear, and we all know that Jenna struggles with nonlinear (laughs) storylines, and it's my flaw, I'll take it. It's not a flaw. Come on. But I think the fact that she makes these characters so relatable, so like you can't get out of their head. And I think that because you're in there with them, it doesn't matter. Like you said, it doesn't matter what is happening plot wise. The other thing that I find, again, talking about the external versus the internal is I've never cared less about what a person looks like. Yeah. Like, I think the first thing when you're reading so often is like, how do I envision that this person looks? How do I envision they move or how tall are they, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't think about that once. I just didn't care. It was like, oh, I know the vague outline of these people, but I'm so invested in their brains yeah. and in what they say that it's it's so secondary what the world of it actually looks like. I mean, I wanted to pull up this quote because uh, Mendel has such a knack for describing people without using like hair color, eye color, or anything like that. She wanted to describe Jonathan and she says he had a voice made for late night radio, warm and reassuring. He radiated calm. He was a man utterly without bluster, confident, but not arrogant, quick to smile at jokes, a steady, low key, intelligent person, much more interested in listening than in talking about himself. He had that trick of appearing utterly indifferent to what anyone thought of him and in doing so provoking the opposite anxiety in other people. Whoa, I know so much about this person in six lines and I don't know what he looks like. Yeah, well, it's weird that you point that out. How did you uh, picture Vincent looking? I mean, genuinely... I don't think I did. Mm -hmm. I mean, at one point she said she had blue hair at some point. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But I think what a gift that is for an excellent author who then is adapted because that gave such an opportunity for casting of those people. And I saw on the Wikipedia for this, that this is also being turned into a TV series. And I'm really curious. I don't know where this will go in terms of who they would put in these roles. I mean, do you have any idea what you think these people looks lo- look like? I pictured her as like a Charlize Theron type of uh, mm. tall, thin, I think in her trophy wife phase, I saw like a short blonde bob. Ooh. It's so funny. Like, I went immediately like Zoe Kravitz. Oh, see that? That's Vincent to see, me. See, here you go. Very different. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it makes so much sense that the author was raised the way that she was raised because she writes so, like you said, poetically, but also so 
spiritually. She's almost on a different plane. Mm -hmm. Because when I, I read her, I feel like I could read for hours and it's not exhausting. Like it's just so liminal. Yeah. It just feels like she's gaining access to a whole different way of formulating words and structuring and and all of it. I mean, it really is just, I would love to, she's a person who I would love to go to dinner with. Yeah. I watched like a, a little bit of an interview with her and she seems so sweet, but she also seems like she'd be someone you'd be having a conversation with and she'd just start talking about a topic that she's super passionate about and you would just feel so out of your element <laughs> that you would feel like, Oh my gosh, she knows so much. Yeah. I don't know. I, I also put one of the um, description words I used was graceful. Like, I feel like it's mm. almost calming. Yeah, it's very calming. She's just so effortless, but it's funny. Yeah, I completely get what you're saying because it's almost like reading it is like talking to an academic, mm -hmm. but like also a camp counselor. Yeah. Like she's accessible but she's at simultaneously inaccessible completely. 100%. And I don't know a lot of authors who can walk that line so well because I feel like she's smarter than me and yet I don't feel intimidated by her words. Or feel annoyed that, oh, she knows... She knows more than I do, and she she knows it. Yeah, she's, I mean, that's the thing. It's all these characters, the way that she describes Vincent especially the way that she describes Paul and Jonathan, these people would not be great in real life. Like, I actually think Vincent would probably pretty be pretty annoying to sit down and have a conversation with, but I have so much sympathy for her, and I have so much interest in her and devotion towards her. Yeah. I, I mean, I think in any other pe person's hands, I would probably really dislike the character, but because it's coming from her, I just feel so much warmth. Yeah, no. She just needs to write a masterclass on character development. <laughs> it's really what Totally. <laughs> because also, like, when you think about it, it's actually really interesting. I hope people have listened to our Daisy Drums episode. If you haven't, go back. But it's really interesting to compare the two because I so dislike all the characters in Daisy Drums, and they're written not to be likable, but I also don't have a lot of sympathy towards them. Whereas in this book, I don't like Paul, and I don't like Jonathan, but I have so much sympathy for both of them. Yeah. I really care about what happens to both of them, despite the fact that I know that they're not good people. Yeah, it's like that that quote. You know that he's done so much bad. You know Jonathan has scammed so many people out of their life savings. And yet you're like, oh, but he's really struggling in jail. Yeah. And he's like going in and out of reality and just really damaging himself. You can't help but feel terrible and like want to jump into the pages and like help him sort through this life. And all you can see is just him sitting in prison, losing his mind slowly but surely. And he'll get, he's going to be there for the rest of his life. But also I have to say my one criticism of the book and it's me. So I have to have a criticism of the book. Always. Sorry. But I don't really see the point in killing Vincent. Mm -hmm. It feels to me like a kind of shock value thing where she was like, oh, I have to find a way to end this. And I think she probably did it because she was expecting, she knew that we would be expecting either Jonathan or Paul to die. And so therefore she wanted to kill Vincent instead. But I honestly think that she could have just ended it where the characters were before the death. 
and I would have been equally satisfied. I didn't need a, a tying of the bow. I I was so happy to let things be loose. It felt weird. It felt like a like a little murder mystery was thrown in there right at the end, and you're kind of like, mm, what? <laughs> and it would have been even better if even if she died, just leaving it as her falling into the water and doing that whole thing. We didn't need to bring in this boyfriend that supposedly pushed her. Oh yeah, we haven't even talked about no. that. <laughs> he's he's this other character all of a sudden who comes in in like the very last section of the book. Yeah, who is questioned about possibly having killed Vincent and this doesn't matter and it almost it doesn't taint it because that's a little dramatic but it it just feels like this kind of extra limb we have already been following these other characters we didn't need this guy nor did we need the police people nor the the police people the detectives that was the (laughs) word I was looking for and also oh my god the shipping container dude there's like a whole character who like meets Jonathan in a bar when Vincent and Jonathan meet and then he ends up coming back he runs the shipping containers for like Canada or something and so figures out that Vincent was on one of his container ships it's dumb and doesn't need to be there yeah it almost felt like Emily wrote this and she ended it at a natural ending point and then her editor was like people aren't gonna read this you're gonna need to add something in at the end that's like whoa it should have ended with Leon and his wife trying to make their way through the life of the shadow what is what do they call it shadow country yeah also leon is the shipping container dude this i wrote this in all caps omg did not connect the station 11 and this because leon is in station 11 whoa he he is like the big business guy and miranda the assistant is the miranda from station 11 oh my god i read a review about that and i was like wait <laughs> miranda jonathan's assistant mm-hmm. oh interesting so yeah that's that's the- because she works with she works under leon at one point like they work together at one point that's right yeah so i mean i feel bad that we're like throwing these other extra characters in in the last part but there's just so many people in this book who seem unimportant and then i guess kind of are important but they're also not because yes i think she's like trying to say that everyone is simultaneously super important and unimportant at the same time in every way. I get the addition of Leon and his wife because you're trying to tell the story with Vincent of coming from nothing, going, having the world and then having that stripped away from you. And then you have Leon and his wife who have the world and then are stripped away from them. And now they're living in what is shadow country, which is homelessness. Yeah, because Leon has this huge shipping job and then is let go and then falls from grace in that way. And he ends up being the person who's like assigned to Vincent's case after she dies. And yeah, but sorry, continue. Well, exactly. So I feel like in that point, I think it is necessary to keep Leon and his wife in that story because I think that is interesting. It is interesting. What what would happen if you would have to sell your multi-million dollar house and move into an RV? What does that do to a person? And he kind of tells that through Leon's wife, how she emotionally handles this. Yeah. I think there's something like very beautiful in that and very sad because you can tell it from Jonathan's point of view, but that's what would happen if that's stripped away and you're put into prison. And I think that's a way you can kind of tell it through Leon and his wife. But it, it could have done with uh, 15 less pages. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think 
probably the point of characters like Leon, etc., can be summed up in at one point after Miranda, who is Jonathan's assistant and at one point is working for Leon, like you said, find figures out that Jonathan has been arrested and all of that. Basically, someone says to her, you know, this will be a great story that you can tell at cocktail parties one day. And that's exactly what she ends up doing. And I, I think that that's kind of the point of the book. Life is just this series of random incidents and sometimes you're wrapped into things that are historically important and sometimes you're not, but everything is of value because it's just all experience and everyone's experiences are different and that's why everyone's experiences are important and unimportant at the same time. Yes, and every single path that you take has a purpose. It's not that if you go back and say, well, what if I took this path? Is it going to be that different? Probably not. Yeah. There's purpose in purposelessness and there is purposelessness in purpose, if that makes sense. The decisions that you make ultimately do lead your life in one way or another, but it doesn't mean that they are wrong or that they have more importance than another decision you could have made. You just do what you do and hopefully you're okay. Yeah. There's a quote that I highlighted. I was waiting for it to fit in and now it did. And I was like, yes, <laughs> do it, baby. Love it. It's kind of long. I highlighted like the end of it, but I feel like you need the full thing because this is how she writes. This is this is a perfect encapsulation of how she writes. Sorry, this is talking about Melissa, Vincent's friend. Uh, in three years, she would move to Vancouver to go to the University of British Columbia and live with Vincent in that ghastly basement apartment on the downtown east side. She'd go dancing with Vincent and Paul on the last night of the 20th century. At 19, she would develop a drug problem, drop out of school, return to Kayette. That's how I said it. To live with her parents while she pulled herself together. A year after... That, she would be hired as a chauffeur and gardening assistant at the Hotel Kayat. But in the video, and this is talking about the video of them playing at the beach together as young kids, but in the video, all of this was the unimaginable future, and she was just a kid twisting around the water like a fish. You could have that entire roadmap mapped out in front of you, but you never know where it's going to end. In the moment that you are standing in right now, you cannot look ahead 10 years and see what you're going to see. You can only do that from 10 years ahead and look back. Yeah, I mean, the other unimportant and yet important plot line that I found a really good example of this was there's a whole chapter devoted to Olivia, who is Jonathan's biggest client, who ends up losing everything mm -hmm. when she's younger. And she goes to Jonathan's brother, who is a painter. And she at that point was also a painter. And he paints her and then she asks to paint him and he ends up dying. He overdoses, right? Mm -hmm. But he's only in that one chapter and that ends up being kind of how Olivia and Jonathan end up meeting is through this brother's death. I think Mendel purposely gets you invested in this guy and then takes him away. It's like, oh, that's just life. Yeah. This is this person and he made decisions and it ended up costing him his life really young and he made an impression, you know, and I think that that's the thing. It's like, all we can do is hope to make an impression to people, but we, we don't know what's coming for us and we don't know how big our mark will be. And we just, we just kind of go on and she's not obviously trying to be yet another author going, look at the beauty of everyday life, guys. She's just trying to be like, Hey, we're all trying our best. Some of us do better than others, mm. but we're all important to somebody hopefully. And even if we are not, we all still live a life that's worth talking about because we're living. Yeah. So just breathe. You're doing 
doing fine. Oh, I think I could not agree more. She writes this one quote about Vincent and that I wrote down on my desk that ties into your what you were saying perfectly. She says she felt that by any rational measure, she was living an extraordinary life. Mm, yeah. No matter how you are living, it's an extraordinary life because it's completely different from what somebody else is living. And so you may think like I binged season three of uh, Stranger Things just all in one day. Like that's a pretty lame life. But in a way, it's completely yours. Did somebody else do that today? Maybe. But you did it in the exact way that you did it. Totally. In a rational, if you put your, if you measure your life to a rational life that you have set out for yourself, it's going to be extraordinary. You can't measure it to somebody who had a lot more resources, who has done something completely different than you because you're not measuring with the same tape measure. I don't know. You just have to take a step back and say, what I am doing is fine. It's actually pretty cool. It's actually extraordinary. And by the same token, you know, I think the other maybe harsher lesson that she, whether intentionally or unintentionally, says is like, you're also your own judge. And I think the thing is, like with characters like Paul and Jonathan, they have what we would call conventional success, but at what cost? Exactly. Paul has killed someone literally, and that person's life meant just as much as his, and yet he was allowed, because of life's coincidence and happenstance, to take that person's life away. And he ends up taking Vincent's work and becoming successful from it. He still has to live with himself every day. So what we're all doing is fine, but also what we are doing can really dramatically affect people's lives. I think she's also a master of showing how little decisions and little choices like giving somebody a pill that you're not so sure what that pill can do to someone can kill another person. And I think that's a metaphor for a lot of life. You're fine, but also be careful because what you do not only affects you, but really affects your surroundings. And actually what to you seems like not a big deal can actually be a hugely big deal. And I think that's maybe the dark side of the extraordinary lifeline is not only can life be beautiful, but life can be really intense. And so every life is extraordinary, but take that with a grain of salt because that extraordinary factor can also be not good. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You never know who you're uh, giving a tainted ecstasy pill to. Facts. And on that, we should end because that's a true, (laughs) that's just a true factor. Right there. Let's get into our final ratings. I gave it a solid four out of five. I said the book is phenomenal. It gets you thinking about life, about purpose, about what it means to live in the real world, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. And then I said, did I get lost? A little bit. (laughs) Do I want to go back and read it again to see what I missed? Yes, I do. It was a hard book for me to like get really engrossed in because, you know, your girl, you know, she struggles with nonlinear storylines. It's just how I roll. So I can't give it a full five because of that. But I think I want to go back and reread it knowing what I know now, kind of understanding the premise and the purpose and like the feelings behind it. And I want to go back and like try it again and dive a little deeper into it. Yeah. So that's why I gave it a four. And the ending was weird. Like like we were talking about, I don't like the murder mystery. Yeah, I think that's a great, I, I it's really rare that a book makes you want to reread it. But I'd say I also have to give it a four out of five just because Honestly, I think if she hadn't have killed Vincent and tried to rush that murder mystery, I would be giving it a five. It's just because she had concocted this beautiful nonlinear narrative of happenstance and then kind of tried to jam linearness into it. And I think had she not tried to kind of put that linear is linearity a word? Sure. I'm going to make, I'm going <laughs> to say that it is. 
she's not trying to put that linearity in at the end, I would be much more committed to it. But I do have to commend her for concocting a story that makes you want to figure it out again. Yeah. And also, I have to give maybe an extra point two, so I'll give it a 4.2 out of 5, to the line, why don't you swallow broken glass? Because it is such a, like, disturbing beautiful, amazing question, sentence, what have you, to concoct an entire book around. Yes. I also think uh, she has a gift for naming a book something, and you have no idea what it's going to be about. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot to unpack. Again, I need to read it again. Yeah. Let's get into our pairings. So we like to end our show with a segment called Pairings, where Ella and I will pick movies, books, TV shows that we think um, will pair well. We also need to pick a wine that we think would pair well. I feel like I've been going first a lot today, so you go first. I feel like saying Station Eleven, the TV show, is like so obvious, so it's like, we're both saying that. Like, we said it at the top. I'll give you a book, which is Into the Wild. Ooh, good one. I mean, that not only is that my favorite book of all time, but it is a true narrative about someone whose decisions ended up affecting totally random people and his own family. So the generic summary of Into the Wild is essentially in the early 90s, this guy, this 24-year-old guy, Chris McCandless, absolutely donated every bit of money that he had and essentially just went on this initially road trip that then became a walking trip, hitchhiking just around America. And he ended up in Alaska and ended up dying in Alaska. But basically, John Krakauer then discovered this story, his story, and then went and interviewed everyone he met along the way and his family. And it just shows you how one person can just affect a whole multitude of people and leave a lasting legacy that then ends up leaving nerds like me with a Into the Wild tattoo. And then also, I just want to briefly recommend Brokeback Mountain and The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Both of them sit in the same liminal space that Mendel does. Just how choice can plague person and also either leave a person stuck or feeling dissatisfied with their own life. Brokeback Mountain is a love story. Heath Ledger, Jake Gyllenhaal, Cowboys in the 60s in Wyoming. Really slow, really moving, really beautiful. And then The Life Aquatic is Wes Anderson. Bill Murray plays Steve Zissou. Really odd. It's so good. Just story of an adventurer. It's so good. If you like just kind of existentialism and people being their own worst enemy and best friends simultaneously. Both great movies for that. Those are good choices. Thank you. Very impressed. I, so for my TV show, I chose White Lotus. Yes. White Lotus is a little bit of a, you know, a more humorous kind of funky take, but it is kind of a similar idea where it's this one hotel and there's a ton of guests checking in. All of them have their own baggage. All of them have their own stories. They kind of tell the story of their lives outside of the hotel, them coming into the hotel and then what happens when they leave. So kind of that similar idea where all these people are funneled into one area and then they kind of get rebirthed, so to say, into the world. And hotel connection. In the hotel. There you go. <laughs> they are very different uh, vibes, though. So, <laughs> so different. Yeah. My book, yes, I did put Station Eleven, uh, but my other book, <laughs> I put two just in case, but my other book was Life After Life, Kate Atkinson. Life After Life is about Ursula Todd. Also, what a name, Ursula Todd. So she is born on this snowy night, kind of crazy stuff is happening. And as she kind of grows up, she keeps dying at different points in her life. She dies in war. She 
dies as a child being born. She dies from the flu. Like, it's really wild. And so it's like, how how does this power of keep com- of you keep coming back to life, how does that dictate the way that you live your life? It's fascinating. It's a really cool book. It's pretty thick, though, so you got to take some time for it. <laughs> okay, noted. And then... Um, and then my movie is a similar to that book with Palm Springs with uh, Andy Samberg. I mean, really, it's like it's that thing of like anything that is that I'm reliving the same day over and over again thing. That is the person questioning what if what if I did this differently? Yeah. Groundhog Day, Russian Doll, Palm Springs. Oh, Russian Doll is so good. Anything, anything that's just taking that idea of like, what if you kept reliving the same day over and over again type deal. And um, Emily St. John Mandel, if you ever want to get dinner, I'm, I would love to pick your brain about just how you view everything. Yes. And we will do a live episode of us just eating dinner with St. John, Emily St. John Mandel. Well, everyone, as always. As always, I will take you all on a date if you continue to listen to this podcast. Uh, Love you guys eternally. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked it, then please go give this five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. If you want more book-related content, you can find us on Instagram and TikTok at rwreadspodcast. Again, that's at r-w-r-e-a-d-s-p-o-d-c-a-s-t. That's rwreadspodcast on Instagram and TikTok. And stay tuned because next Tuesday, Abby and I will be discussing the book The Diamond Eye by Kate Quinn female Russian sniper in the midst of World War II who becomes best friends with Eleanor Roosevelt. It's quite the story, and you really won't want to miss it. Until next week, keep your books open and your drink glasses full. Thanks all.